We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast, where this week we're joined by Jay McAllister, or better known as Beans on Toast. I'm Peter Smith. And I'm Richie Gallagher. Now, Jay was at the heart of the Norsey's indie scene in London. As well as his own alt-folk music, he ran some of the biggest indie gig and club nights like Frog, and he mixed with the likes of Frank Turner, The Holloways, Florence and Machine, and many, many more at the infamous Nambuka pub. Then we had the Maccabees, Laura Marlin, Florence and the Machine, Jamie T, obviously the Holloways and Frank were kind of, you know, like resident bands that were like, the Holloways practice downstairs, you know, Frank lived there for a spell. Um, yeah, and then, you know, and then at the same time we started running our Central London Club Night, which was like a thousand capacity uh, indie night called Frog, which started at 10, 10 o'clock with one live band on at 1am. And again, this was just when indie music and the kind of club scene just exploded. Uh, there's some great stories about some great nights out on that Holloway Road. Rich, me and you had plenty of good nights out at those venues at that time, didn't yeah. we? But Jay, he was in the thick of it. Yeah, he really was. He, was. he was a proper face on the scene. You know, every gig or club night I went to, he seemed to be there, you know, in some capacity. Um, and, you know, he was famed for, for being uh, around that scene, uh, but also getting up on stage and doing his own stuff. And, you know, his music was a great commentary on, on what was going around during that time. You know, really great songwriter uh, about all sorts of things, you know, wider issues in society as well. Yeah, and he's still going strong. So um, album number 12 is scheduled to come out later this year. But he's been releasing some music during lockdown too, which, which really underlines how quickly he works and his ability to translate what's going on around him into a song. Yeah, it's a really interesting chat. So um, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, once you've had a listen, please do check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Just search for Boys in the Band Pod and rate and review the podcast too. Now, here's Beans on Toast. This week, we've got the pleasure of being joined by Jay McAllister, better known as Beans on Toast. Jay, thanks for coming on the Boys of the Band podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, yeah, my pleasure. I mean, it's probably worth saying early doors that we're going to be talking about a period of my life that is particularly blurry. So uh, <laughs> I, I will do my best to, to recall parts of it, but I reckon there's, there's whole years in the noughties which uh, I have got no idea what I was doing. <laughs> but, well, I can guess. But I wouldn't be able to get give you dates or specifics as to what I was up to. But yeah, I'm well. But you were having a good time, though, presumably. Mm. <laughs> oh God, yeah. I mean, that's why you know it was the, it was my twenties, basically. Being you know being no, it wasn't. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, being born in 1980 always makes you know like each decade you can kind of. It's the 10 years of your life. Yeah, either, sure. you know, So it makes it easy to sort of like, well, it should make it easier to remember. But it <laughs> cool. Well, Jay, we um, kick off these podcasts with a little section we call the sound check, a nice warm up. It's three quick fire questions. Um, first of all, obviously we're doing this over Skype today due to uh, the coronavirus lockdown. So whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in my home in East London. Um, my two-year-old daughter's having a nap upstairs my wife's just put her down so um we've been in quarantine for yeah two months we we kind of 
as soon as my gigs got cancelled, I didn't really have a huge amount on. And, you know, with a daughter and whatnot, we uh, we sort of locked ourselves down before it was kind of mandatory. Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been two weeks. It's, you know, it's fascinating how adaptable we are as a species, I think, um, sort of retreating into our homes. I, it's, we, I'm just trying, you know, spending time with, with a two-year-old. It's gone super fast timers obviously can sort of bend can't it and uh but my wife's been really busy at work so it's been me and me and my two-year-old and i've been trying to keep her world as big as possible in such a small space um so you know obviously it's tragedy and all that i'm not saying that but i'm just you know trying to stay positive and stay creative and and just kind of concentrate on my family really has been where my head's been at yeah good stuff all right second question in the sound check jay is um which band or musician are you loving right now um, a guy called Gabe Lee, who um, is like a sort of national country singer, basically. It was one of the few times that um, Apple Music suggests actually got it right. Um, <laughs> when I was like, if you like this, you might like that. I've obviously, you know, had a lot of time washing up and listening to music. So I was like uh, ready. I, I sort of gave my faith to the algorithms a little bit. And my favourite thing that come back is a guy called Gabe Lee. He's got a new album called Honky Tonk Hell. And uh, it's kind of John Prine-esque, but um, just really, really great songwriting. Nice. Next question is, what's the best gig you've been to in the past 12 months? If you can remember a time that when we used to go to gigs and uh, see bands live. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been many in that, uh, that I wasn't sort of playing myself. Oh, I, the, the last gig... I went to that I wasn't associated with before lockdown was uh, Tyler Childers, who's also a country singer um, at Shepherd's Bush Empire. And and it was great. I really love his stuff. And uh, actually, the person I was going to go with kind of bowed on me. So I went sort of rolled solo uh, to, the, to this gig at Shepherd's Bush, uh, which, is, which has been a while. You know, I travel a lot by myself and I, I go to a lot of my own gigs by myself. But um, it was... It was good. It was, you know, I was, I was pretty surprised. I've, I've, I've always loved country music, and normally, in the past, it's been something for kind of old men that listen to radio too. But the Tyler Childers gig was like a really young, really mixed audience, and I was, I was really up for it. I actually started off down the front, and I got a bit squashed, and way <laughs> I watched it from the balcony for the second. But uh, yeah, it was a good gig. Can't wait to go back to a gig. Yeah, basically. yeah, exactly. So there's obviously no gigs at the moment. It's uh... It's a difficult time for, for everyone, but um, especially for musicians in, in that sense, in terms of having no gigs to, to go to or, or put on yourselves. But um, it hasn't necessarily prevented you from releasing the music. You know, Frank Turner was telling us on our recent podcast about how quickly you could turn a song around, like having done a, have a song done and dusted by like the Thursday, all about the previous weekend. And um, that sort of immediacy of your songwriting means that you can sing about topics that are really current. And that's still still very much the case as so back in April, just a couple of weeks after the lockdown started, you released Strange Days, all about the experience of the shutdown. So um, tell us a bit about about that one. Well, I mean, in all fairness, I've got another song coming out tomorrow as well. Um, and so that was, that first Strange Days was, as you said, you know, pandemic hit. It kind of, everything happened super fast. And then it was like, uh, it, it's quite weird because I've always written about current events and never really questioned why I'd, I've done it before. But writing about that, something that was such a, um, it was impacting everybody's lives in a huge way. And I sort of had this huge need to 
sit down, write about it, and then like make a video for it and release this song. And I and I had to question sort of why do I feel like a kind of a need to do that? And I think it's kind of working it out for myself, as you know, certainly in the songwriting process of it. But when the when the world changes quicker, it actually yeah it inspires me to write and react quicker than ever. So that song was about the kind of initial my initial thoughts of the uh, of the pandemic and the kind of the idea of lockdown and whatnot and uh i've got a new song coming out tomorrow called human contact which is a, a song about how much i'm kind of missing friends family and, and sort of festivals and gatherings and whatnot as well and uh and and it feels like with you know i've got time while i'm here as well as i said i have a daughter but you know i play guitar every night i'd i'd be writing songs anyway so um and i've got just a really simple microphone here so i almost feel like as long as this goes on i'll probably be writing recording and releasing you know if i'm not gigging i need to do something and i think it's quite healthy for me to be to be creative and getting it out, you know, for me personally. Sure. And there are obviously positives and negatives about, you know, how music is released these days and how it's distributed, you know, what, what you think about streaming services or not and, and how they uh, sort of credit uh, the musicians. But one thing you can say about it is that you are able to, yeah, push something like that out a lot quicker than I guess you would have been able to do previously and reach reach a much bigger audience than if you were producing it, say, as a CD or a tape, you know? Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I've, you'd never find me whinging about about the way that sort of music is distributed changing. You know, it's always changed. I think it's quite to moan about what's definitely going to happen is 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 pointless. You know, and people, you know, I still sell CDs and, and and vinyls and stuff through my website and and at gigs and you know, but I never listen to, I never buy anybody else's. <laughs> you know, like I listen to all my music online, and it, yeah, be able being able to sit here you know at the very sort of in in my little living room on my desk here where I'm sat talking to you now I, I wrote recorded made a video all on my laptop you know and then put it out into the world to as many people as wanted to wanted to hear about it. and I think that um that connectedness is kind of has, has been at the center of, of the pandemic you know if you talk about sort of plus sides of it I, I really thought initially when it was like everyone's going to get sent home to stare at their computers. I, my, my sort of way of thinking at the time was the biggest problems in the world, be it kind of polarised politics or depression and stuff like that, generally come from people spending too much time online. And I was like, if everybody's going to go home and be online, it's going to be a disaster. But it's actually been quite the opposite. I found that social media has actually became a lot nicer place. And with, you know, people doing... I personally do the Joe Wicks workout every like Monday oh, yeah. to Friday. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and people kind of streaming like cookery courses and obviously, you know, and the whole live gig streaming. And it's not going to cut the mustard, but imagine without it, you know, and it's like, it, you know, having a conversation with your family on Zoom and stuff is like, it it really helps bridge, you know, this time and, and make it kind of, well, you know, if we have to sit it out and, and until it's safe, then it's, it's definitely going to help these bits. So, yeah, I'm sorry, you wanted to know about streaming news, didn't you? But yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, it, 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 it's easy and it's phenomenal the way that you, you can get music out there. And again, for me, and I'm not, you know, it, it's also something that means I can be more DIY than ever as well, um, you know, and keep things ticking over for me. Not that I'm doing this as a sort of financial thing, but, you know, there is, you know, so, sort of staying, staying in the game, I guess. 
Yeah, stay, staying, crea- staying creative, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in terms of that sort of uh, your songwriting style and that having that immediate commentary on what was going on in the world at the time you were writing it, was that one of the, the sort of attractions for it in the early days, you know, to stand up in Nambuka or wherever you were and sing about what people had been reading about in the newspaper that day or, st- you know, the stuff that people could relate to about what was going on in their lives? Uh, it was, but it was less sort of like let's tackle world events and it was more sort of let's sing songs about cocaine, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, the, 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 the first record was, um, I guess there was stuff that could be sort of deemed sort of, I don't know, political or to have, have a world view. In fact, no, there was definitely some shoes the world. Yeah. But it started much more as a kind of like soundtrack in the party. And as you say about, you know, sort of turning a song around in a day, that was definitely the kind of something would happen in a wild night out. And I'd turn it into a song and play it back to all the people that were at the wild night out, you know, the following week or the, or a few days later and whatnot. And that was yeah. kind of, um, yeah, and that was, you know, kind of the, the birth of, of the sort of beans on toast thing as well. I mean, it was in Nambuco I'd, I'd started... I've always written songs. I used to play in like a band when we were kids and me and Dave, who I did all of the stuff that I guess we're going to talk about, like Nambuco and Frog and all our club nights and stuff. That was Dave, my best mate who I grew up with. And we were in a band together and uh, we moved down to London and the band kind of fell apart. And that's when we got into to club promoting. And, uh, and I ended up just sort of doing that and, and sort of and not really releasing any music for a long time. Um, while we was doing Frog and everything, just basically having too much of a good time to give a shit about needing, and, and having a creative output through it, you know, do, feed, designing the flyers for the nights and the kind of just building the whole idea around these kind of club nights and the pub and stuff like that. So, but then once we was at Nebuch and it was sort of settled, I'd, I'd always been writing throughout and then it was like these kind of new batch of songs came through that were, yeah there were about the day-to-day of my life then and then it just kind of without much force it turned into being beans on toast i think initially i was going to start a band i wrote like i had a bunch of songs and i was like i'll start a band and call it beans on toast and then i went to glastonbury and played the songs to a bunch of people solo and came back and was like fuck it i'll just do it solo then it's easier and it's been you know a fucking blessing since then because playing by yourself um means that well it means that i can sit here and record and release my music you know however long it is 20 years later yeah sure i mean yeah sure we'll move on to talking about sort of the promotion side and frog you know i was I've said previously on this podcast, I was a regular there and absolutely loved it. But we've also heard stories from guys in the Holloways and Frank um, recently about Nambuka. And it just sounds like it was such a good place to be a musician at that time. You know, a lot of support, a lot of good friendships, um, obviously a lot of good, good nights out as well. So what are your memories of those sort of early days when when you were making well, music with those guys? So, so the, way, the way that kind of Nambuka went down, so it's Dave and I. So Dave is the drummer of the Holloways the chap yeah. that we used to play with and 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 we we was living in archway which is one end of holloway road and we had um a club night on i'd i'd moved to london to start hand out flyers and and then from that learn how to kind of basically got a night at the garage which is at the other end of holloway road and we had a night called static at the garage where we'd never dj'd before but we, dave worked at tower records and i had one of the first ever sort of iMac 
laptops with like a CD drive that you could burn music onto it. So Dave used to take the laptop into Tower Records and just rip all the music <laughs> from the CDs onto because this was before streaming or anything like that. So we basically had we sort of like. And he was allowed to do it, but he was kind of like robbing this music from Tower Records and had this incredible collection. And we just used, and we just plugged the laptop in on a very early version of iTunes. So there was no fade in between tracks or anything like that. It was just like one song would finish and the next one would start. And if the song was going on too long, you just hit enter. Get on with it. And and I think at the time, Dave and I thought we was going to, at the time I was listening to some really odd bands like Clinic and, uh, like Yurisai Yatsura, and I think we thought we were going to play the sort of music that, that we liked. And DJing at the garage, there is, there's the bar, and then there's people that aren't on the dance floor and people that are, and that's it. So if there's ever anywhere to learn how to DJ, you know, they're either, list, they're either liking it or they're not, and there's two different places for them to stand. And it was just so happened that around that time, it's like, uh, you know, the White Stripes and the Strokes and the Libertines and all these bands that everybody wanted to listen to. And the clubs just, you know, and we just kind of, we wasn't even particularly quick on that music or particularly into it until kind of everybody was. And everybody, and we learned, to, I learned to play the Libertines because that's what everybody ran from the bar to play, you know. So and we kind of just, from that club night there at Static, met, a, you know, as you do when you're that kind of age, you know, people were kind of moving to the city and quite hungry for exciting friendships. And we was just sort of formed this little kind of crew basically. And, uh, and we'd all just go, you know, we'd do the club and then we'd go out partying sort of uh, all the other, it was like Monday night at trash, Tuesday night at feet first, uh, Wednesday night at candy box. Like there was a different kind of indie night in sort of central London every night of the week. And they was all like, you know, a quid to get in and two pound drinks and shit like that so you can just kind of go and go and uh and off the back of it was kind of during that time that dave and i just went into nambuka on a sunday and it was you know it was halfway down the holloway road in between where we was living and where we was putting on a club night and uh we went into the pub and it was like empty not we drank in there all afternoon and not one person walked through the door and we just got chatting to the manager chap called Bernard I believe yeah and uh we was just like why is you know it's a huge pub and there's no one in it and he'd just taken it on and he was just like we no one comes here we're just trying to see what we can do so we said look we'll throw a party here next Sunday and uh, if you give it you know if you give us some free drinks we'll bring some people in and uh, and that was where it all started really we did a, a thing called sensible Sundays and we basically rammed the place the following Sunday just with everybody that we'd been out with on the Saturday night before and it was like a absolute carnage and the manager was just like so desperate to have people in his pub he just kind of let us get away with it and we started doing a regular Sunday and and then we started building a kind of small PA and working out how we was going to put bands on and stuff and uh and then sort of long story short um oh then we moved in basically that was the next thing it was just like we was you know like I said we was living an archway up the road and um the guy but it was the guy burner was sort of like kept on telling us it was turning into a bit of a circus and people were coming in we started doing Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights and then I was just storing some stuff there and he was like you can put it upstairs and I went upstairs and found like I think there was 11 rooms in Nabucco uh, back then. And, and there was two people, 
two of the people were in the rooms. The rest of the rooms were empty. And I was just like, what, are you, what do you mean there's all these empty rooms? I was like, can we move in? And the guy Brandon, was just like, yeah, I guess, you know, <laughs> move in. And that was when the circus started, you know. Um, about two months later, Bernard moved out. And one of our friends, Jamie, moved in, who had a kind of a history of managing pubs. And he took it over as the manager. The chap that owned the pub owned a whole bunch of other pubs and was never really expecting it to make any money. So as long as it wasn't losing money, um, he just left us to it. So we wasn't really squatting it, but it was like, kind of um we was left to our own devices and i think i learned a lot when we got out of nambuka about how you run pubs and what we was doing wrong like but i think the secret to it was that it was in no man's land between two london boroughs so if on the halfway down holloway road is islington and the other side is harringay and harringay put christmas decorations up to about like 20 foot away from nambuka one way and Islington put Christmas decorations up to about <laughs> 20 foot the other way. So no one's willing to take responsibility for it. And I think if the, at the time, if people were calling up to complain about a kind of uh, like a paddling pool on the roof of a pub at 4 a.m., <laughs> no one would take the complaint because they're just like, oh, it's Islington's thing. So none of the complaints ever got back to us. And it was like this weird sort of pocket of, uh, of, of just kind of like, it was like an outlaw pub. And I didn't know any of this until we moved into other pubs and I had like the police on me in a week. <laughs> like, what are you doing? I had my license taken away and everything. But at the time, it was, uh, at Nambuka, it was just like, anything goes. And, uh, you know, we was all, like I said, we was all in our 20s. The, from that, you know, then we, we started, we, uh, the Kitty Daisy and Lewis, the band, they came down to play when they were all little kids. And their dad, who's a good friend of mine, uh, their dad came down and was like, this is rubbish there's no PA brought down a PA with him and then I bought the PA off him that day so they left without it and then we had a PA and uh, yeah I mean without you know in, into the sort of name dropping segment but over the kind of however many years we was there which I think we was there five or six years and we had the Maccabees, Laura Marlin, Florence and the Machine, Jamie T, Obviously, the Holloways and Frank were kind of, you know, like resident bands that were like Holloways practice downstairs. You know, Frank lived there for a spell. Um, yeah. And, th you know, and then at the same time, we started running our central London club night, which was like a thousand capacity uh, indie night called Frog, which started at 10, 10 o'clock with one live band on at 1 a.m. And again, this was just when indie music and the kind of club scene just exploded and our our kind of secret trick of frog was the band booker a guy called imran ahmed who weirdly went to school i went to school with in essex and we moved to london separately and met each other and he was the new band's editor of the nme at the time and uh, he basically said you do the club i'll book the bands and at the time you know if the new band's editor of the NME says, do you want to play my club night? You, you know, you say yes. <laughs> and every, everybody, I mean, I can't even think of the bands we had at Frog, you know, like Kaiser Chiefs, again, Maccabees, Jamie T, like, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm bad at name dropping anyway, but there's a, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a list somewhere. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's every band of the day there. And that was, and then it was just like, that was it. We'd do Frog on Saturday night and just, like take the cash from that and then just put it under our beds at Nambuka and just sort of like 
go mad for a week and then do it again <laughs> the next Saturday. Very good times. It was, uh, you were definitely, from my memory, you know, a, a face in the crowds, Jay. You know, I remember just every gig or club night I went to, you, you seemed to be there. And it was like either either you were promoting it or performing or just, you know, on a night, on a night out getting on it. But it was, uh, you know, a really exciting time with, you know, the, the, the calibre of artists that were coming around, you know, the sheer number of them and the variety as well. So, so who back then did you get into? Who were you excited by? Musically, yeah. um, I mean, I remember, I remember seeing uh, Florence, um, as in Florence Welch, Florence the Machine, for the first time. I sort of knew her as as a pal, and I remember the first time I saw her singing, which was in a, as, as random as it sounds, we actually got the keys to another pub down the road from Nambuka uh, uh, for a short spell. But we was in there, a place called the Devonshire Arms. And she was just stood on this kind of makeshift stage without a PA, banging her foot on the floor and singing. And I was just like, I've never seen anything like it. And I, I was like, surely this is like worldwide talent. This is like, the, I know that, you know, I'm off my head and it's a friend. And I'm, but I was like, regardless, I was like, this has to be superstar quality. Like it is, I can see it right there and then. And lo and behold, you know, it was, you know, I made some bad calls in my time. You know, I remember seeing Coldplay and thinking Coldplay at the new band's tent at Glastonbury and being like, they're just fucking ripping off Radiohead, load of rubbish. And then like four years later, I'm dancing at the front of the pyramid stage, you know, like knowing every word. Um, so, but that was one of the calls that I was like, that surely that's more than just, you know, us being into music and, and being into drinking and, and singing in pubs. This is, something else here this is worldwide talent and uh yeah yes i guess that was uh, you know i was uh, definitely a sort of like um and like laura marlin jamie t you know them two were also as far as sort of songwriting and and certainly music that sort of stands the test of time and that i sort of go back to now and listen to i mean laura marlin's new album which came out last week is up there with her with her finest work i believe yeah definitely um Jay, you obviously collaborated with a lot of the, the people we've spoken about previously, you know, Frank, the Holloways, Emmy the Great, they were all all appeared on that debut album, didn't they, Standing on a Chair, which was produced by Ben Lovett from Mumford & Sons. So what struck me, though, were that these are all musicians whose own projects, they all sound quite different, and then again, they sound quite different to what you produce as well. So while you had that support, and obviously you were in the midst of this scene with those guys, where did your influences for your own music and your own style come from? Um, I think it's weird because I was never hugely sort of like, never listened to much sort of folk music as such. Um, it was more out of kind of ne necessity is the wrong word, but just sort of like, I think it was probably just easier <laughs> to sing songs <laughs> on an acoustic guitar than it was to do it with a band. Uh, I do remember, uh, at the time I was, when I was first or concocting that the you know the idea of beans on toast and that first record i was also listening to a lot of john prine who is very much a folk songwriter and a sort of storyteller and at the time i had a bit of an obsession with um his the john prine live album and i only really pieced that puzzle back together uh because he passed away um last month and uh i was speaking to an old friend and we went to see him at the flower festival in finsbury park way back in like 2000 and three or four or something like that it was uh, and I remember then that it was like so yeah I guess maybe invertedly John Prine 
but it wasn't like I ever sort of thought I want to make folk music. It was more like I'd, all the bands I played in in the past, or the band that I played in the past, I, I always sang in an in American accent, which was <laughs> uh, kind of embarrassing now, but was kind of like almost the done thing in Essex in the 90s. You know? <laughs> uh, and, um, and I come out of that and uh, I just didn't want to sing in an American accent and had to find my own voice. And, uh, and, and that was, I think that was why being the Toast was so fucking English when it started off as well. Like, white governor. Because I was so, yeah, uh, so adamant that, uh, that it needed to, to be English. But it was, yeah, it was a case of sort of like, it was as sort of wanky as it sounds. I think it was a sort of like, rather than any one thing that it was inspiring me to write music, it was more sort of myself and the scenarios that I found myself in. Sure. I mean, I was, just, I was going to throw a name out to you there. Um, do you remember Willie Mason? He was a guy who I was yeah, into. Yeah, he was someone yeah, who was into back around that time. And um, yeah, I just wanted to do, I, I felt like there was some similarities between what he was doing and what you were doing. Obviously, you know, yeah, with his American sort of background and upbringing and influences it's obviously talking about slightly different things to you but yeah go on yeah i think what he did really well he kind of pierced into the indie scene and bridged that gap between Mm. folk and indie and definitely kind of um you know i know that he was a huge influence on the mumford boys and stuff Mm. like that as well so and and you say about the sort of when it's like talking between sort of Florence or the Maccabees or Jamie T and stuff like that, it's like there, um, sort of, there's different genres of music there, of course, but I think the kind of thing that connected everybody was London, you know, and it was like people making, you know, good music in London or, or even, you know, people coming to London, be it the Pigeon Detectives or whatever, you know, coming down and staying for a couple of days. And, and that was what was, it was just kind of, there was a kind of quality that joined things together. And I'm not necessarily wouldn't even put things on toast in, in that thing. I was always a bit of the kind of sideshow circus act. Um, but my, my kind of role, I, I knew all of them people because of my role of kind of facilitating it by putting shows on at Nambiga and putting stuff on at Frog and whatnot. And that's why, you know, that's why the first album is kind of laden with, with kind of superstar guests as well, because it was like me sort of like working it a little bit and riding on some coattails as, as well as kind of, you know, creaming other people's creativity as well. All right, Jay, we're going to take a, a little break there, I think. So um, stick with us. In part two, we'll chat about your epic debut album, all 50 songs of it, um, how that all came about <laughs> and, uh, and chat to Jay about what's coming next. This is Beans on Toast and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this.
Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we're joined by Beans on Toast, or Jay McAllister, as he's also known. So Jay, Frank Turner was telling us about your initial reluctance to record your music, and that he encouraged you to get off to, to get your stuff on MySpace um, and get it down so that people could hear it whenever they wanted to. But by 2009, when your debut came out, it had 50 tracks on it. So you obviously got into yeah. the recording process eventually. <laughs> so tell us, yeah. uh, tell us the story of how that all came together in that huge epic. Uh, starter well yeah i mean like i said i was just kind of writing and playing gigs non-stop um i was just at the time it was just like my sort of rule of thumb was if you get off at a gig do it um so i was playing sort of if not in nambuco then at another mostly in london but you know like three or four gigs a week in london between like the old queen's head or whatnot and um so i had like, loads of songs and kind of you know a, a handful of people that sort of gave a shit about the songs and people that knew them and it was yeah it's frank took me on tour basically it was like the first um one of the first, i think maybe it was the first frank to had a full band tour but it was like you know like a legit real tour and i was first support and i think part of the deal was you know like you come on a tour but you need to make a record of <laughs> you know just and and then extra mile which is Frank's manager and the label that I, you know, that I worked with for, for my first nine albums, a chap called Charlie, was just like, look, we're we're happy to put an album out, you know, j- just for the fact that you're going on tour with Frank, and you know, you you're silly not to. I don't know why I needed convincing, but basically between Frank and Charlie, yeah, they convinced me to to make a record. And I was at the time, I was like, I think is, I just feel like I'll end up doing something really annoying. Charlie was like well, you know, just go back and have a think and come back. And then I came back and I was like, right, I've got it. I want to do a 50-track album and I want it on double CD. Like, now that's what I call music. <laughs> like, the big double-packaged ones. And Charlie was like, fucking hell, that is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and also going to write off, you know, like, pretty much any profit from the CD. But I think I just kind of counted my songs and I had 46 or 47 songs. So I was like, well, I'll write three new ones and then we'll just have 50. And it just seemed, seemed like a sort of round number. <laughs> and um, and then it was, I just approached Ben. I think once at a very similar time just happened to be with Ben. And it was before... Mumford had you know exploded and it was they was another band where when you saw you know it was like fucking hell this is going places so it was clear something was was, was happening but they had it quite sort of taken over the world um but I knew that Ben had some recording equipment and I knew that he was a kind of musical mastermind so I just sort of said you know I've got some songs I need to make an album and we did it in like the loft of his parents house in uh in Wimbledon and uh, we just did it in a weekend, basically. We just went up. He sort of set up, had a few bits set up, and we just kept it minimal and just like, he was like, yeah, if you want to do 50 songs, you basically need to do it in one take per song. <laughs> and, and, and that's because we'd also kind of put almost like a blanket call and text out to everybody saying, if you want to come and be on the album, please do. Um here's the address just come by so over the course of the weekend we also had you know maybe 10 different sort of guests come in to do little bits and bobs as well so we just didn't really stop and just sort of like just hammered it out over the weekend and and that was that yeah went back to charlie did it you know did the, did the tour and uh and 
lo and behold, it, it sold, you know, and it's still that record on Spotify, you know, it's still my most listened to album. So it's how it goes, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, and you released it on the 1st of December uh, of 2009, mm-hmm. your, your birthday. And then you went on to then release every new album every year after on your birthday since. So, um, yeah. You know, what was the thinking behind that? I think initially it was, so come 2009, when that album came out, Nambuka had burnt down and we'd all been kind of cast into the wind. And uh, and then we set up another, off the kind of, from the ashes, we set up another venue in Kentish Town called The Flower Pot. Uh, myself and Dave and like Danny and Frog and sort of a lot of the sort of Nambuka crew. And we was all living there. So, so we was at Flower Pot. And the um, it, it's kind of an important time for a um, when when it, when you start off making music and or being in a band or or any kind of performance, you can initially rely on your friends and family to come to the gig. And back in the day, you know that was what it always was. You text your friends and you'd get a room full of mates and, and play to them. And it's quite an important part of your kind of career if you like when your friends are going to stop coming and people that you don't know and you've never met are going to start coming and that's the only way you'll really ever be able to do it for a long period of time because you can't rely on your mates forever sort of vibe and I was just awkwardly sat on that fence where my mates are just getting bored of coming to my gigs and and a few people would come to a gig, but probably not enough to kind of make it a good one. So I just was like, fuck it, I'll have a birthday party. And, I, and my mates will come because it's a birthday party. And it can also be the album launch. I'll, you know, <laughs> promote it to the general public. And it was kind of like a bum, bums on seats trick, you know. And it was like, we'll do it at the flower pot because at the time my, my job was, you know, to get people through the door at the flower pot. So... We just sort of did that and it was also it worked for the timing of the tour and, and it was just it was going to come out around that time anyway so it's just like you know let's just do it and then the next year there was another album that was ready around the same time and it was like should we just do it again it was like <laughs> yeah fuck it you know and then the third year once you've done anything three times it then becomes a thing doesn't it and uh, <laughs> and now this year will be my 12th album you know, released. So that's 12 years of, of one one year, you know, one release a year for the last 12 years. How long is it going to go on for? That's the question, isn't it? <laughs> when yeah, it I mean, if, if, if ever there, because, you know, it being the kind of um, the 10 year, you know, obviously 2019 was a sort of 10 years and it was like, is that the time? To go? <laughs> you know, and it was like, well, it, it, it's weird because, it, it works for a lot of ways that I never sort of planned. Like I, I do a lot of, um, I play a lot of the same festivals year in, year out. And most bands, you know, most festivals want to change their lineup as much as they can, which makes perfect sense. But again, there's the element of the sort of sideshow, not it's like, oh, fuck it, it's Beans, you know, you can play every year. But there's also the knowledge that there'll be new songs every year. That's the kind of guarantee, you know, you're not going to get the same show. So there's elements of that, and it's also turned into my complete natural output is, you know, an album a year without being forced or sort of worrying about it. It comes out, keeps me moving, and now it means I can just plan really far ahead, you know, because I know where I'm going. Well, certainly before the world got locked down, but before I could plan where I was going to be and when I needed to be in the studio and when to put an album out and stuff for, you know, a couple of years ahead. So it kind of works. But it was never really planned out that way. It was just, yeah. why, why not? 
you've released a, a lot of albums over the years, a lot of songs. So if you look back on, on that debut and compare it to, you know, where you are now as a musician, you, you know, and the stuff you've released, you know, on your most recent album, The Neverwall Trainwreck, how would you say your music and your, your songwriting might have evolved over that time? Well, the biggest thing is me voice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, back in the day, I was like, you know, I was smoking rollies without a filter, probably smoking 30 or 40 rollers without a filter. You know, if I'm being completely honest, I was, you know, doing cocaine three or four nights a week and probably pills two or three nights a week, staying up late, chatting, absolute nonsense, loud place, screaming and shouting. And the result of that was the kind of the voice, basically, which because it was quite a slow deterioration for me, it wasn't anything that I really noticed happen until I became the guy with the fucked up voice that was. And I think that was also the kind of, again, singing songs about being hammered on that first album. The the, the voice was that sort of proof in the pudding that it was like, you know, like he means it, you know, <laughs> this guy sounds like he has, he's been at a party for five years, you know, and that's kind of what was happening. Um, and, uh, you know, and I stopped smoking, God, maybe four or five years ago now. And slowly my kind of, you know, my voice retained an element of, of normality. And, and it, it as and when, which I don't do very often, but as and when I do kind of have to endure listening to them old songs, it's, it's always the voice that's like, fucking hell, it really was, you know, brutal, absolutely brutal. Yeah. Um, but, um, but apart from that, um, I would say rather than kind of celebrating the kind of evolution of my music, I'd, I'd, I'd actually celebrate the kind of consistency of it. I think I'm still writing songs with the exact same chords um, as I did on that, you know, I've basically written them 11 albums are basically one song that's just been given different treatments <laughs> over the course of time through brilliant musicians and brilliant producers that I've worked with over the years and having different subject matter to kind of tackle. But um, it's in, in many ways, it's what I do now is, you know, the same as, as what, I was, what I was doing then, which might be seen as, you know, as a bad thing, but I, I'm something I'm actually, I'm actually quite proud of. And, you, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that my songwriting is perhaps, you know, a bit better now just because I've been doing it for so much longer. But also there's a kind of, a kind of naivety that you, that you can't kind of fake, you know, that I think maybe, the, maybe the first record has, as I said, you know, still gets more MDMA, MDMA and gets more listens and, you know, than any of my other tunes. So, so with that in mind, obviously 1st of December 2020, you're not expecting a huge sound change, but um, what, what can we expect from the, the latest offering? It's a uh, yeah, big big milestone coming up as, on that birthday as well, isn't it, Jay? Yeah, exactly. It's my 40th <laughs> birthday. So um, the album that I was kind of planning to write, um, or, or the album that I was writing um, before you know, the pandemic and before the world changed was, so my last record was called The Inevitable Train Record and was kind of about, you know, the destruction of society through climate change, basically. And it was a very kind of end of the world doomsday record, um, certainly lyrically, musically, it was pretty fun. Um, but I came out of that and I was like, Fuck, I don't want to write another album about the end of the world. And it was coming out on my 40th birthday. So I started writing... Uh, an album that is probably going to be called Knee Deep in Nostalgia and uh, and a kind of autobiographical 
album about my life. So a song about my favorite teacher at school, a song about the village disco that I used to go to when I was 10 years old, a song about, you know, the 2000s and, and Camden and stuff like that. And, uh, and a kind of, not every song, but a kind of overarching theme of that as an album. And I'd written like eight or nine songs for that. And, and then, you know, lockdown happened and the pandemic happened. And I don't really, when I'm sitting writing songs at the moment, I'm, I can't really tune into this kind of wistful <laughs> journey into my past. And I'm, I'm writing more about, you know, the current situation and what's happening right now and what's, what might be happening in the years to come. So I think it's probably going to be two albums at the end of this year, to be honest. One of them that was written beforehand and one of them was, that was written kind of post-pandemic. And, um, and hopefully, you know, before long, eventually, you might get to, to, get to go back out on tour again. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, and I think everybody's kind of, you know, presuming this year's a write-off, I guess it's kind of fingers crossed for next, you know. And, uh, and, and there's also going to be, you know, there's going to be a huge battle to save culture, at the, uh, uh, you know, on the other side of this, be it saving, you know, the venues and the pubs and the clubs and, you know, the musicians themselves and, and all this. And it's going to be, it's going to be kind of wild west. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm fucking ready, you know, ready to be at the, right at the front of the, of, of the wild west and do whatever it takes to, you know, to, to let that kind of touring network and that sort of the life that we had kind of flourish again, you know, everybody's obviously going to have to probably work a little bit harder and get a little bit less for it um, for, for quite some time, but it's, you know, again, it'll be, it'll be worth it. And, and you know, for, for someone that's been kind of bashing the system, my whole adult life, sort of watching the system unravel i mean and not taking away any of the kind of tragedy of the of the, or the loss of life or anything like that but the, you know there must be a way we can rebuild society to be stronger out of this you know and the one part of society that you know that i, I know is is that, yeah is that kind of live music side so there's a, yeah. there's something kind of kind of exciting about what's going to happen live music on the other side of this um so joe this that leads us nicely into the encore which is our final three quick fire questions because we've been talking about gigging there so if you look back you know played lots of gigs but if you could pick out one that stands out perhaps your best gig or your most memorable gig what would that be for you at the moment i'm gonna say uh my show last year at boomtown all right uh, on yep. the town center and and that's because the song that comes out tomorrow is so I've been making videos with what I've got here and I managed to get hold of all of the video footage, uh, professionally filmed video footage from my Boomtown gig, which was up there with certainly the biggest gigs I've played. And uh, so I've made a lyric video out of that. So I've basically been look, looking at my own crowd <laughs> um, through a computer screen and kind of reliving that gig while making this this video for the past week. And uh it's an incredible thing to be able to watch back film so well, especially because Boomtown's the crowd is. It was a really sunny day, and everybody was like, not in fancy dress, but just like living it fucking large, like really <laughs> large, you know. And obviously, you know, Glastonbury always holds a special place in my heart, and you know, and also the Milton Keynes gig, the last one. I, I, I love all gigs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, tough to choose a favourite, sure. Yeah, yeah, especially with someone who tours as much as you do. Um, and we also talked earlier about your, you, you know, the immediacy of your songwriting. So, um, what's the quickest you've ever written a song? Um, I mean, there's definitely songs. I, I wouldn't know which one, but there's definitely songs that probably the first when I made it up, um, it was probably like ninety percent done just sort of off the cuff. I would sort of yeah. buy myself sit there and go, come up with an idea and just sort of freestyle a song and then just go back and sort of tidy it up and then that's it. So, 10 minutes. <laughs> so, last question of the interview. What's the song you're proudest of that you've done? Uh, the Human Contact, the song that comes out tonight. Nice, this is a good answer. I like it. <laughs> Go and check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, thank you very much for your time today, mate. It's been great going yeah. through these stories. Very interesting. Yeah, great yeah, chat, Jay. It, it was really nice to talk. Another pointless video call where nothing gets done? I think you're on mute, David. Uh, oh, sorry. What did I miss? IT just approved Miro for the whole company. Miro? That's the... Online whiteboard. For team collaboration. We can make these long video meetings so much shorter with Miro boards. We can share ideas, feedback, and updates on them whenever. Actually see what we're talking about? It's all online. Miro will make our flexible work setup so much easier. With one virtual space for our brainstorms, projects, presentations. Oh, that sounds kind of amazing. So I don't need to wake up for 6 a.m. calls with the London office anymore. Now you're getting it. Don't let time zones get in the way of your team working well together. See why 99% of the Fortune 100 trust Miro to get good work done from anywhere. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.